And voila. An image keeps appearing in my mind of something that happened to me when I was a monk. It doesn't seem very profound, but... But the image is there, and it's asking to be told. I think sometimes our practice does get really serious, and does get a bit heavy. And it is nice to have a sense of humor sometimes about how things are. And I remember during our monastic time, a few times a year, all the monks and nuns from the different monasteries would gather at one monastery or the other. And this time they were gathering at Chithurst. And we would have these morning gruel meetings, which sometimes could be grueling affairs, Yeah, where you'd have your little cup of rice, porridge, or oatmeal. And all the the abbot, and then all the senior monks sitting around, and all the senior nuns, and all the postulants all crammed into this little room. And sometimes there'd be this really intense, serious look on everybody's face. And uh, because we were all going for it, going for enlightenment, getting up at four every morning staying up all night every week on the phases of the moon, being disciplined. And there were joys, definite joys in the life, but sometimes um, things would get a bit intense. And I went through a phase in my monastic life where I was very ill through having had typhoid and then years of having a, a very debilitating disease called Crohn's disease. And uh, so I used to have to have uh, special medicines and things. And uh, I spent many years sort of as the monk who was lying down in the attic. And uh, so I'd make appearances from time to time, and usually someone would say, Who is that? (laughs) He looks so ill. I better knit him a cap. I got up I got up to about eight caps. Eight woolly caps. Is he the one you keep chained up in the attic? But anyway, I, the monks used to know that I would have my bag of pills and things to carry around and cause all sorts of healers visit monasteries from time to time and every healer in the book had a therapy that was kindly offered, and so I was a sort of... I didn't die, so they must have worked to some degree. But it was common knowledge that, and all monks have bags, they have brown bags to match their brown robes. And it was common knowledge that Kitty Sorrel from time to time would reach in and pull out a vitamin C or kind of beta carotene or, or vitamin E. And so we're at one of these morning meetings. And the monk next to me, who was a longtime friend, was, was known as the sternest, the most capable of keeping the awesome deportment, who wouldn't be shaken by, by anything. <laughs> and so he was next to me being awesomely deported. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I reached into my bag, and I was having trouble with digestion, so I had certain kind of allowable foods that were allowed to me. And his eyes were kind of half open, and he was expecting a bottle of vitamin C or something. And I pulled out 
the longest banana that he had, <laughs> that he had ever seen. This massive. <laughs> and in the middle with all the abbots of all the monasteries, all the senior monks, all the senior nuns, the awesome one lost it. <laughs> and he got hysterical, and then I got hysterical. And then, and then we quickly, every monk has a sitting cloth in the bag, and you also have a towel in the bag to cover you when you're eating the meal. And so quickly, I got the towel and stuffed it in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, laughing can be very good medicine, so I don't know how profound this is of a reflection, but... <laughs> But on day three, sometimes I do think on these retreats, there is a kind of cosmic uh, turning point that can be, uh, can be painful. Sometimes uh, a third day. And being able to, to laugh at ourselves, I think is a, or to be light about the moods that we're getting in, our intentions, our worries, our obstacles, is a very, very useful. Maninda. In fact, once I, this was after my first onset of the illness in Thailand. Thailand, I showed up in Thailand with, with big muscles because though it's not uh, immediately obvious to, to, to only those with a discerning eye. <laughs> I used to be a champion wrestler <laughs> before the joys of meditation. <laughs> And uh, I showed up in Thailand with, uh, I must have been 25 pounds heavier, big arms, big shoulders. And I had such a big chest that some of the village women thought I was a girl. <laughs> and um, so I really, with typical enthusiasm, uh, I got into the meditation in a big time way. And, uh, after the first year ordained as a monk, got sent off to a, a branch monastery where no one spoke English and where I thought I could get down to more serious practice, none of this chit-chatting with all these Westerners. <laughs> and it was there that uh, the first sign that all was not well with my body was six months of diarrhea straight. But then, uh, that was, never mind that, but then I, I, I started to uh, urinating blood, and I thought, there's something going on here. So I went back to, the, uh, to a hospital, which was a nightmare. A hospital in Northeast Thailand is a place where people go to die. You don't go to a doctor, because people are scared of doctors. <coughs> they go to doctors in Northeast Thailand when you're, you're, you're finished, pretty much. So that was a, a terrifying experience, which I... Um, 
which I managed to survive. That's not the main point of this story. But then after that, I went back to the monastery and I was losing a lot of weight, really bloated belly, not feeling that well, determined to keep kind of working at this enlightenment thing. And I got to this point where I was sure, positive, I would never smile again. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but I was really convinced. I was just heavy. And I was, you know, I mean, in the past I had been I'd been a champion, or I'd been the first in my class, or I'd been this or that. Now, I looked around and I just was another one of the bald heads. <laughs> I mean, you go to places in Northeast Thailand and there's hundreds of them, all in brown. <laughs> Everybody has bald heads. And, uh, and somehow, I mean, now I can see that and see it as inspiring, but at the time. <laughs> It just, and what I have to look forward to is another day of diarrhea. <laughs> another meal where I would, and in Thailand you ate one meal a day. And that was it. There wasn't any morning gruel or anything like that. One meal. And the one meal would appear and I would, because I was on the path of enlightenment, I had resolved I was going to eat mindfully. Mm-hmm. And, and you, you would have to wait because you couldn't just start eating. The first monk would take a bite, the next monk, the next monk, the next monk. And, and you're just noticing out of the corner of your eye because you don't, you can't appear to be interested, really. <laughs> really, because I mean, food, what's food? <laughs> bodily function. Yeah. But you know, you know when the next monk's coming. And then you know you're all there and you know it's just, it's just mindfulness. I mean, you just have to see, know when you're full. It's, it's quite clear, really. And then to have, keep waking up with the bowl empty. And, and with this sense of having swallowed a whale. <laughs> and, and then crawling back to the hut feeling like a failure and feeling overcome by greed and then hating oneself, considering suicide, and, but then resolving, <laughs> never going to eat again. <laughs> and then resolve, well, I will eat, but I'll never overeat again. And then that happens <laughs> day after day. And the conviction that the practice isn't working starts to set in. <laughs> And, uh, and there can get a, a depression, and I looked around and I was just was convinced. That just heavy. So it was decided I needed to talk to Ajahn Chah, which was our master, our meditation master. And at that time, my Thai was very <coughs> fundamental, very basic. It wasn't that good. So another one of the Western monks had been there five years longer than I had. Uh, who could speak good Laotian and good Thai, took me over to Ajahn Chah, and the other monks went to chanting, and we just went to Ajahn Chah's hut to talk to him. He sat in his wicker chair, and I sat on the floor. And so he's a big round fellow, and very, just very peaceful person, very, uh, a lot of humor, good person. And um, he says, what's the problem? And I said, I said very seriously, Loon Paul, and we called him Venerable Father, Loon Paul, Loon Paul, I'm just not getting anywhere, and I, I just, I don't feel like I'm ever going to smile again. <laughs> I mean, it just all seems so dark, just, uh, just not feeling well, and I can't, just like a pig every day. <laughs> and, um, And he, uh, I mean, many of you have heard this story, so I won't tell the whole 
story, but, but he, um, <laughs> he just told me a story. He said, well, Keith Sorrell, you remind me of uh, a chipmunk and its mother. I don't know if you have chipmunks over here, but they're like squirrels, yeah. kind of a smaller version. <coughs> he says, you remind me of a chipmunk. And he says, uh, and Anna actually it reminded me the other day, Tenika showed me in the, uh, in the tree over there, these the squirrels, the, the gymnastics that these guys get up to, racing up and jumping and diving, catching branches and twirling around. And anyway, this uh, mother chipmunk was adept at being a chipmunk, what all the chipmunk could do, and was rushing up, jumping, leaping, twirling, and the, and the baby one said, right. <laughs> jumped up, leaped, <laughs> and then the word in Thai, Ajahn Chah is sitting above me in his wicker chair, and, and the word in Thai is dok, and, and dok means fall, and, and, then he, and then Ajahn Chah kind of had his head kind of go like this, as the baby chipmunk kind of uh, <laughs> falls down like that and starts to cry, and mom says, look, what you need to do is you need to go to nursery school, you've got to learn how to do this, don't worry. You just go to school and you'll be able to do it. So the chipmunk goes to nursery school, goes to first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, and sixth grade. And he's graduating from primary school, so he knows a lot. So you know what happens. He kind of rushes up, jumps, gets a tree, he knows that move, goes around, does a twirl, and <laughs> dok. <laughs> Ajahn Chai a way of kind of doing his head, kind of like, like that. And... Uh, Anyway, he had this chipmunk going to high school, going to college, <laughs> getting a PhD, and he kept having it falling. And then about, about high school level, I don't know when it was, but I started ro <coughs> rolling on Ajahn Chah's floor because I just was getting hysterical, <laughs> hysterical laughter. And he just kept having this thing falling down, dog. And, 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 and the chipmunk's, I can't do it, I can't do it. And the mom says, you gotta go to school. You just keep going to school. <laughs> And so, anyway, I'm dying laughing, and, uh, and then I, this chipmunk gets a PhD, and, uh, and then Ajahn Chah said, and, it, and one day it ran up the tree, and it dived over here, and it dived over there, and it leaped over here, and it twirled over there, and it could do everything that its mother could do. And then he went, nah. Which uh, is a noise that Ajahn Chah likes to make, that kind of means like that. It goes, means nah. And, um, and that was something so reassuring. It's something so reassuring to be able to laugh at our falling down, our falling down, but to just know, just keep going to school. Keep studying, keep practicing. And that with conviction, and he said it with conviction, and I take it on faith, too, that we will be able to do it. We'll be able to do all the things that the mother chipmunk, the mother Buddha, that our teacher can do. And why he could say that with conviction is because it is our destiny, it is our destiny to wake up. Because our, our falling is a result of our not understanding, our not clinging, our not seeing just the true nature of things. That more and more as we massage, just <coughs> massage awareness into, into the darkness of our habits, that we'll see. But we need to be patient need to be willing to fall down, willing to feel the pain, willing to hear. Ajahn Chai, another thing he taught was that I came, I came to Thailand from Oxford 
having gone to Princeton, I read probably thousands more books than he ever dreamed about. And, uh, but my head was just crammed full of stuff. There was a lot of confusion bouncing around in my head. And uh, for a lot of us Westerners, Ajahn Chah encouraged us not to read very much. Just don't. He didn't say reading was bad. But he said sometimes we're reading for the wrong motivation. We're just kind of wanting inspiration or wanting being supported by knowledge that we feel like we're kind of putting into our head. And Ajahn Chah said, read the book of your heart. Learn how to read the book of your heart. I would like to really to emphasize that on this retreat, that we do have time and we do have some wonderful books available in, in this world now. But I do think what is rare is, is to put into practice what almost all these books are telling us, to really be mindful, to really, to really bring into the light of consciousness the dynamic of our being. And, and, uh, and this is a kind of situation where we're, we're encouraged to do that. So I would really encourage us to try to stay with the different moods and stay with the different states and look at a tendency to 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 want to you know to want to go out for more external inspiration because actually actually we don't need a lot of teaching I don't think I mean it's good to be reminded but if you take the Buddhist scriptures and we think, God, I've got to learn that stuff. I mean, there are volumes of them. You've got to remember that this is everything pretty much that the guy said for 45 years. And that he would, he would talk to someone and give them a teaching and then they would go for six months and just contemplate that, contemplate that everything changes. Really go deeply into contemplating that everything changes. You know, I really deeply contemplate the, 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 uh, the teaching that, that grasping leads to suffering. And, and there's some, I think there's a tendency not to go very deep sometimes with our practice, to want to stay on the inspiration level with, with putting inspiring thoughts into our head, which, which do, I mean, I can't, under, I can't underestimate it. Yes, it is important to have a sense of how to practice. That's very important. But many times we have that sense of how to practice and we don't really follow it through. We don't really, really stay with it, do, do the work. We keep getting sidetracked and addicted to inspiration or addicted to external supports. And we wonder why we don't have an internal sense of refuge. Now it is, it is very important to have a sense of what direction we're going in. I mean, it is true that right view or clear seeing or seeing the way things are is the beginning and ending of the path. It's, it's, it's very important. And it is important that, our, that just going to school, just hard work, isn't ne- necessarily wise work. So, so we do have to balance our efforts with considering how am I practicing. My view in the beginning of practice, of meditation, was that practice was about getting into spiritual states, getting, getting uh, high, because my vision of enlightenment was getting into that ethereal, high, peaceful, clear state. At the time, 
I didn't realize it. Now I can see that that was kind of wrong view. I was working, not really understanding. But I was doing anapanasati. I was doing mindfulness of the breath. I didn't really know what I was doing. And as I would contemplate on the breath, a light would appear. And I thought, that must be enlightenment. Light, enlightenment. <laughs> focus on the light. And the more I focus on the light, the stiller I got. I got closer to the light. Closer to the light. And then thrilling feeling of kind of joy started going through my body. Exciting feeling. I'd get kind of higher and higher and higher and higher. This is when I was still a student at Oxford. And I would go, <laughs> i go, wow! I just said, got to celebrate, because I mean, I feel so wonderful, I'd celebrate. And I was going to celebrate and just add on to this blissful state my favorite music. And so I rushed upstairs to play my friend, my roommate's stereo, and I rushed upstairs in this enlightened state and opened up the stereo so decisively that I ripped the top off of it. And then the ecstatic state disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> but but this is a this is a common I think mis uh, understanding of uh, of samadhi. I mean samadhi can lead one to some blissful states, but we need to remember that that is a conditioned state. It's not the end goal. It's not the end experience. It's, it's skillful to a certain extent if you don't get carried away with the bubbly joy of it and rip off <laughs> something. It's skillful to gather, but it's conditioned. It's dependent on having your object there, on having a certain degree of health, on having the conditions right, not having the clock maybe bothering you or not having a, somebody uh, bothering you, snoring, or somebody bugging you or, or not being ill or something. If you have the conditions right and you can get into that state, and realizing that that is a, a peaceful state. But remembering that it's not a certain state that gets one, not attaching to a certain kind of state, but it's the comprehension, it's the understanding of how things are that was free. Remember the Buddha in his uh, ordeal got to where he could go very high, but he, he sensed that he would come down. Then he got to where he could endure tremendous pain, hoping something would snap, that enlightenment was somehow snapping something, breaking something. And that just emaciated and weakened his, his state. But somehow realizing that that high, collected, purified, radiant state could then be used, we could use that then to illumine, illumine our thoughts, illumine our body, illumine our mind. And so, so, so the Buddha realized that, that the stillness and tranquility and composure of mind balanced with insight, with investigation, that those two would, would bring forth understanding and then freedom from delusion. So Ajahn Chah describes the power that we get from our samadhi, from our one-pointedness, staying with the breath. There's a certain control in that. 
It's not to say it's bad, but staying with the breath. That means conditions are, are, are controlled, getting that energy. That that's like having a, a candle. And the stronger your samadhi, the more steady your samadhi, the more peaceful and refreshed it is. It's like having a big candle or a bigger candle. But Ajahn Chah would teach, you know, what's the use of just having a huge candle? <laughs> you know, you could say, I got a bigger candle than you. <laughs> but he said, you know, you light the candle, then you light that candle, and then that candle can illuminate. It can bring in, into dark places. And for, for I mean, I, we all have different temperaments, but I had the kind of temperament that would kind of come forth with spectacular kind of visions from time to time. And so for years I would, I was addicted to somehow thinking that special experience was what got you closer. I mean, I would uh, see big wheels revolving kind of in my meditation, get closer to them, or kind of sh- sh- ships of... Uh, sinking into seas and kind of thinking, wonder if that's a past life, or I wonder if this, or if I wonder that, I must be getting somewhere, or I would... Once I even uh, was meditating and um, really hard, and then relaxed for a second, and then flowers fell out of the sky, and this immense bliss kind of just filled me up. I mean, I imagined I saw flowers that I don't think anybody else did. <laughs> <laughs> and I was sure I was enlightened. <laughs> for about 30 minutes. But, uh, and now this is where it's useful then to have instruction. It's useful to have... <laughs> to be reminded. You know. And, uh, and we do need to be reminded. So I'm, I'm doing some reminding. <laughs> and when the Buddha taught his... his uh, first sermon, you know, that he shared shared his awakening with his first disciples. He said, I, I, I discovered a middle path. I sense that there's extremes that, that, that should be avoided. One is the extreme of a kind of just grasping after sense pleasure. And in a way, even the attachment to high meditation states is similar to that. It's a kind of seeking the ending of suffering, seeking peace by holding on to something that's pleasing. Even though there's skill involved in it, there's no doubt about it, there's skill involved in our capacity to be peaceful. (coughs) Still there's an attachment in it that's going to bring disappointment when the conditions aren't there. The conditions have to be in place for us to stay in that particular state. He says, I've avoided the extreme of attachment to pleasure or attachment to pain or attachment to the desire to get rid of, the desire to crush, the desire to torture, which can also be a path. It might not be that familiar to, to us kind of idea that we're getting somewhere the more we inflict pain on ourselves. Maybe the idea of building up points, <coughs> merit points. But, it, but in, in a more ordinary way, we can relate to this truth by sometimes we seek peace by getting rid of what we don't want, destroying an aspect of our life, by blotting out pain, 
by getting rid of people we don't want to see, by repressing things, by pushing things away. In a way, that's, that's an aspect of this truth, seeking peace through getting rid of. And the Buddha taught, I've avoided these extremes. And it's by realizing four things, he said, monks, that I've... I have uh, found freedom. And it's, it's by not really understanding these four noble truths, I've had to wander endlessly in this samsara. Now most of us, or many of us, have heard the four noble truths. And the part of us that likes to accumulate, and that feels somehow that the road to enlightenment is just accumulating knowledge, not saying integrate it, but kind of accumulate, then, then part of us thinks, oh God, Four Noble Truths. I know that. But this is where I think it's useful, I think, to reflect on Ajahn Chah's, do we, can we really read the book of our heart? Can we really <coughs> absorb these teachings deeply? So, so, so I'd like to, to reflect shortly on them. And he said this first Noble Truth is the truth of suffering. And this truth needs to be understood. <coughs> you know, this, 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 the word dukkha, that which is difficult to bear. It says birth is dukkha, old age is dukkha. We chanted it this morning. Death is dukkha. Being put together with that which we don't want to be with, being with the unloved is dukkha. Being separated from what we cherish is dukkha. Not getting what we want is dukkha. And even the, the what was called the five objects of the grasping mind, even, even when you isolated existence itself, when it's not understood is dukkha, meaning it's not reliable. Because it's continually breaking down and becoming otherwise. Now, rather than rather, rather than trying to uh, convince ourselves of some kind of opinion, life is suffering. The the uh, the Buddha encouraged us to understand this, to stand under, to be willing to turn to that in our experience, which is difficult to bear. Now, this is a very important principle. My initial principle of enlightenment was getting to this high state and somehow getting high enough so that it would happen and then wondering why, why, what didn't it work? How come the stereo is broken? <laughs> but but, but what, a, what, a, what a different approach that actually that which is difficult needs to be turned to, needs to be worked with for the sake of understanding it, for the sake of comprehending it. Can we turn to the experience of sickness? Can we turn to the experience of fatigue? Can we turn to the experience of not getting what we want when the chanting is too short or the chanting is too long or the sitting is too short or the sitting is too long? Or the discussion is this way, or the discussion is that way. <laughs> or the talk is too boring, or the talk is wonderful. 
I mean, can we... I mean, there's no way that, the, you know, we're all different. There's no way the retreat's going to be a perfect retreat. I mean, there's no way that for everybody the chanting can be right, the sittings can be right, the discussions can be right, the teachings can be right. It's impossible. So within any kind of framework, we're going to have different kind of storylines in each of our hearts. But the possibility of beginning to investigate that kind of feeling of finding something difficult, feeling of restlessness or the feeling of desire not having what we want, the feeling of aversion, the feeling of dullness. When Lumpa Cha says to read the book of the heart, you know, he means, do we really, you know, do we really know ourselves? Do we really know what's, what's going on within us? And that by being willing really to, to first of all, it is in, it's called a noble truth because when, when there's the willingness to turn to what is, what is difficult, not just to torture ourselves, but for the sake of understanding, for the sake of being able to understand, that's ennobling because there's a courage in that. There's something very, there's something very, what's the word? I don't know the right word, but there's something when, when we're so intimidated that we, we feel like we have to run from things all the time. That something's always on our back, something's always on our tail, and, and there's something, you know, that's frightening. You know, when we turn to something that's difficult, like fear or like anxiety or like uh, doubt, and then, then hear it kind of well up, hear it kind of well up. And we, we fear we're going to die. We, we, we fear we're going to lose something. There's something noble in that willingness to, to open our heart to the totality. And then there's the possibility of, of realizing the second noble truth. We can start, when we stay with something, then we can start to see how it comes to be. We can start to see how it's generated, what's leading to that state. So the second noble truth is called the cause of suffering. So the first and second noble truths, suffering and the cause of suffering, are really the noble truths about samsara. They're the noble truths about uh, dukkha. The first noble truth, suffering needs to be understood. The second noble truth the Buddha taught is that the cause of suffering is, is ignorance. It's deluded desire. It's this deluded <coughs> sense that we can somehow own something, somehow keep something, somehow find a me, a formal me, and then build a house there and, and, and then be steady there. And, that, and, and it's not a, an evil thing, it's just that it's built around non-awareness. It's built around not really seeing clearly because there isn't a clear comprehension of the nature of things. There's this tendency through desire, the desire to grasp, the desire to become, the desire to get rid of, the desire to identify and find ourselves. And if we don't really understand, if we haven't really taken to heart that characteristic of existence that we're encouraged to investigate with our insight, 
to really see that this sensory plane, this plane of form and of feelings and of thought and of perception and of consciousness, this sensory plane is flickering and changing all the time. If we haven't really seen that, then we won't see the danger of grasping. So why is there, why is there And this isn't just theoretical. I'm hoping when we read the book of our heart that we can actually see how we take birth, how we grasp at something and then become that and then feel stable there. Like me, I took birth in that pleasing state of watching the light, getting high, and then the thought comes in, yes, I've got it. <laughs> and in a moment, there's kind of taking birth and there's this assumption of I'm happy. <coughs> and then I, I built a little house there. And so why was it then such a trauma then when my happiness turned into a broken stereo? How am I going to tell someone? Or when I got my hand thrust up in front of a few thousand people and I was the national invitational prep champion in Pennsylvania in the 126-pound class. And my mom saved the scrapbooks and it's all in there and it's all there. When you have mothers, they kind of keep all your best things everywhere. <laughs> your hand is raised up. And then, and then uh, 20 minutes later, you're, you're worrying, who's going to be in the tournament next year? Who am I going to have to fight next year? Or when we all must have our own experiences, or when uh, we went to someone's we visited someone who was uh, very ill and died and who, who used to be a hugely powerful bouncer at a New York nightclub. Very powerful, very strong. And then watched his, his power dwindle away through a debilitating disease till he couldn't even move. So what is this process of kind of taking birth in praise, taking birth in pleasure, taking birth in confidence? <clears throat> I knew someone who, who's a good practitioner of meditation, who'd practiced letting go of lots of things, but still didn't realize how much he took birth in his memory. Just assumed that he could always go to the memory. He could tell a story and it could start here and you think, God, he's gone off now. He could come around an hour and 20 minutes later and it was kind of perfect. He was dying of cancer and everything else was falling apart and he was quite at ease. Oh, Bhante, what you call a monk, it's just the body dying, never mind. But then one day, the first day when the cancer affected his brain a little bit and he, he couldn't remember, he had everything in his memory. And one day he couldn't remember who had seen him that morning. He couldn't remember. I went into this incredible panic. This incredible panic. Because <gasps> he'd taken a stand on that. Fortunately, he went in and out of lucidity so we could talk about it. We could t he could start to then read that, listen to memory as something that comes and goes. It's not, not a rock. And when one starts to see it changing, it's like if you climb up on a ladder and the wind is really blowing hard, you'll, one will realize, hey, this is a kind of shaky, shaky place to be. Shaky place to be. Climbing on top of, of a condition and assuming that it's not going to change is a shaky place to be, and yet it's called birth. 
But if we really read the book of our heart, meaning our heart is our awareness, and the book of our heart is every page, every moment as it unfolds, the stories and the lines and the pages through the chanting and through the sitting and waiting in the line and getting up in the morning and not wanting to go to chanting or wanting to go to chanting. And we each have the different, different lines. But to actually start to read that, listen to that, can we actually see that the breath is in and out? It's changing every instant. <coughs> can we actually see that feeling happy and feeling unhappy and feeling happy and feeling unhappy? And that the light grows and that the light dims. And that the vitality is in the body and it goes up and then sometimes the vitality is not there. And that sometimes the meditation is better and sometimes the meditation is not so good. If we really start to see the changing nature of every form, every body, every flower, every particle, the changing nature of our feelings, changing nature of our thoughts, especially how flickering they are. If we really start to see that, then we start to question, how can, I, how can I find something permanent in that? That's what's called dukkha, because it's continually becoming otherwise. So it's not that it's bad, but if we ask the sun not to set, if we ask the seasons not to change, if we ask the in-breath never to become the out-breath, if we ask our body not to age, we ask our loved ones never to shift and change. I mean, goodness gracious, how arrogant, because we're not, we're not in touch with the world. We're, pro- we're a massive projection of it, wanting it to be, the world to be the way we think it should be, not allowing the world to follow its laws, to follow its nature. So in a meditation, we have a chance to read and, and, and become familiar with the lawfulness of the in and out breath, the lawfulness of moods and happiness and unhappiness, and begin to sense the suffering that comes from demanding things to be other than they are, the suffering that comes from holding something and not wanting it to change. So the, the third and fourth noble truths are enlightenment. The third noble truth means that there's an ending of suffering. And that needs to be realized when we let go. When it says the ending of suffering, it doesn't mean to say the ending of pain. I mean, some things will still be painful because we still have a body that's subject to pain, that's subject to sickness, that's subject to fatigue. It's not to say that when we, we might, that might be a wrong view. We might have the imagination that if we get enlightened, we're never going to feel any pain. But that's not the case. Because it is what it is. But how much pain, how much do we know ourselves? How much pain do we add to the pain by wishing it wasn't there? How much stress do we add to our lives? by continually having, an agi- continually having an agitation in our heart of, of trying to figure something out or trying to get somewhere. Continually holding or pushing, holding or pushing. And since it's a projection, since if we really could see the true changing nature of things, we would know that you can't grasp. But because we're so busy grasping 
reputation and grasping fame and grasping happiness and getting rid of pain. Ironically, our, our whole vision is, is revolving around the surface of our being and this very willingness to, to, to stop and start to feel, start to inquire, start to be patient, is an opening of the heart. And then the refuge starts to be born, which is not taking birth in something that's unreliable. The refuge of Buddha, what we've been looking into, the listening, the Kuan Yin, the listening, the willingness to be awake to, vigilant to, that's always available when it's daytime or when it's nighttime when your meditation is going well or when your meditation is not going well. When your memory is working and when your memory is not working. There's still the possibility of, of resting in, in that which is aware. And within that awareness, conditions manifest and conditions arise and conditions cease. And so the letting go, the third noble truth, is... is is uh, just even realizing that all that arises ceases, that the breath ceases, that the mood ceases, and being able just to, in a moment, say, God, everything's just changing. What am I gaining by trying to kind of figure out who I am by grasping at something? If one can just see it as change, see it as, as a lot of trouble if one grasps it, and just practice some letting things be as they are, then one can have the experience of tasting the peacefulness of not being born, the peacefulness of not dying. Because you only get born when you climb onto a condition and you only die when it shifts and one feels upset. And then you get born again when we try to find stability somewhere else and try to grab hold of some pleasure or grab hold of some support. And so the letting go, not being born, not dying, and resting in what? Resting in Buddha, resting in the original heart, resting in awareness. But then that's not the end, because then we can say, gosh, finally, I've got here. It's taking me long enough. <sighs> this is relief. And then what have we done? We've, we've become the thought. We've become the thought, I'm enlightened. We've attached to the thought, or I'm making progress. And then any old condition can come along and knock us off again. Well, I fear to go on much more, because I'm... I worry sometimes that if people are tired and I bore everybody, <laughs> um, but I am, I am grateful that there are friends who are willing to undertake this turning around to look at that which is difficult not in a self-torturing way, but in a realistic way, knowing that that's the way to understand, is to turn to that which is troubling us. And I'm uh, grateful that we can encourage each other to do that. And while doing that, we can also learn how to find ease in the simplicity of composing ourselves on the breath, composing ourselves on the body, 
and allowing that ease then to be turned into investigation to begin to reveal as we read the book of our heart reveal the various attachments and the various difficulties and then that is the last noble truth that fourth noble truth is just the truth of walking the path the the truth of uh, of, of gathering in little by little the whole of our life, not just meditating when we see the light or meditating when we feel peaceful, but then trying to gather in our discussions and, and, and trying to be conscious when we're talking and notice what's happening, how we take birth when we talk, how we grasp, how we reject, what happens when we're eating, what happens when we're resting, what happens when we get up, what happens when we sort of don't kind of know what to do, what happens, and we'll talk more as the time goes on, what happens when we go back out into our daily life. And little by little, the path is, is an encouragement to gather into the heart, gather into the mind, every aspect of our life, from our actions to our speech, to our thoughts, to our intentions, to our meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.